All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I am Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. That's right, folks. You played Spin the Bottle with Destiny, and it brought you to the Missing Out podcast. We're sorry? Nope. We're not sorry at all. All right. Well, I just I just wanted to extend my sympathies before we dive in too far. Tari J has no such sympathy for you. Tar- Tari J is a, a, a near silent, nameless killer. When he kills you, it, it's going to hurt. Yep. And you're going to go flying comically backwards. <laughs> uh, but only some of you. Sometimes you'll just fall directly back down. And some of times you'll just fly like you are a, a, a feather on the wind. Well, the, the fascinating part about the stylized violence in the movie we're about to discuss is that you can tell who had a big breakfast by how far off the ground they fly when they're shot. Right. Of course. Um, so uh, if you haven't read and you don't know, we're talking about the 1996 movie starring Bruce Willis. Uh Christopher Walken, a bunch of character actors? Yeah, we're going to talk about the number of character actors in this movie that I'm, I'm big, big fans of. It's written and directed by Walter Hill. Uh, it is called Last Man Standing. It's, uh, as uh, Walter Hill would call it, a free adaptation of uh, Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Uh, it has the same general premise, sort of, but... It takes place in 1930s Prohibition era Texas, and uh, the a lot of the morality is different. Uh, so that that's that is this movie. We it's part of our uh, month with no name branding. So see this one. This one's a, a pew pew gun sound. Last right. week it was a more of like a. Uh-huh. like a western whip sound yeah uh, this is this is pew pew right because we're, we're we're current we're variable we're adaptable yeah everyone gets it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh so uh so this is what we're going to be talking about it's the last in our series it is um the the last it's 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 the most yep it's it's a thing so i feel like you you just half pitched it um, and I feel like if I were to if I were to try and spruce it up a little bit, I would say, um, yeah, uh, in 1996, this movie came out, written and directed by the great Walter Hill. And yes, he calls it a free adaptation. It is an officially licensed remake of Yojimbo. Both Akira Kurosawa and Ryuzo Kikushima are both uh, credited on the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It is, as you say, it's set in Prohibition Era Texas because it's set in Prohibition Era Texas. It still very much has a heavy Western uh, sort of sheen on it. And there's some really interesting sort of stylistic and tonal stuff that that Walter Hill is able to play with as a result. Having said all of that, uh, Tari, I think I think we're maybe breaking new ground for the Missing Out podcast ever so slightly this week insofar as. Uh-huh. Now, tell me if I'm wrong. I'm going okay. to take a swing here on a prediction. Okay. You didn't love this movie. I'm going to guess. Um, I did not. Okay. So, Here's what I will say about this movie. I think maybe just because I'm a, a fan of uh, a greater number of the individuals involved than maybe you are, like maybe I get a little more mileage out of it. But I'll be completely honest. I watched this movie uh, two days ago mm-hmm. and I watched it again yesterday and okay. I could still barely tell you what happens in it. I feel like as I was watching it, I went, oh, wow, I it's a good thing I've seen Yojimbo in a fistful of dollars, or I don't know that I would be able to follow this. I mean, I can I can tell you definitively what happened in it. And I think that, like, in watching it, the, the main takeaways that you should have, or that I had, were that it's very 90s. It's, it's very, very noir-influenced. Um, it's I think that the big piece of it is that it is so many different genres wrapped into one movie that it doesn't really know how to, I guess, 
spread them evenly. Like it, it's 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 jarring how it jumps from genre to genre. Um, and so I think that that's partially why I wasn't super into it. Also, the fact that um, as I've said before, that when gunfights start happening, unless they're like insanely stylized, right? My brain just goes, "Make the noise stop." Make make it go away. And, yeah, and, and it's interesting um, to hear you sort of bring up that point because I do think it, this is a movie where the sort of stylistic back and forth wouldn't necessarily uh, be jarring to me, but it does feel a little bit like the movie's almost afraid to have fun yeah. in a way that like Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars were in no way afraid to have fun. And this movie feels almost suffocatingly somber yeah. the entire way through. And as a result, I feel like all of the moments, the stylistic violence, for example, that is uh, on its face, super heightened, feels like it feels like you're trying to jump and somebody's grabbing you by the legs and pulling you down. Does that right. make sense? And it's so like the back and forth, the um, the noir aspects and the Western aspects, even if they're not overlapping in a totally sumptuous way, I feel like would be a lot more fun if the movie wasn't as just unrelentingly bleak right. as it is. Yeah. I mean, and I assume that that's because when, uh, when Walter Hill was originally approached, uh, I mean, he was very reluctant to make this movie in the first place. Right. Uh, but then, and one of his main directives was like, hey, don't make a Western. Right. And he's like, well, fuck. Like, I'm a Western director. Like, that's my shit. And so then he's like, well, I, all right, then now I feel obligated to make it different than Yojimbo, but also different than Fistful of Dollars. And so how do I do that? Oh, wait, it's the 90s. Make it gritty. <laughs> as, if, right, as if Fistful of Dollars is lacking in grit somehow. But that really does seem to be the idea. It's like, how can we take... And I do feel like uh, even though even though Last Man Standing is technically a remake of Yojimbo, it does feel a little bit more like it, it's pulling from Fistful of Dollars, both in terms of the Western aesthetic. And also there is the um, sort of in the... First, I want to say the first act of the, the movie, there's that big ambush sequence yeah. that's pulled from Fistful of Dollars far more so than than from Yojimbo. But yeah, it does feel like, okay, well, I guess, uh, how do we make it different from this this other very straight Western version? I, well, that one's fun. Yeah. So I do, though, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to uh, contextualize what I meant when I referred to him as the great Walter Hill uh, a couple of minutes ago. I just assumed it was cheeky and you're like, fuck that guy. Not at all. He smells fact, like toenails. No, it, I mean, I, I've never stood close enough to the man to, to be able to describe his scent. But uh, no, actually quite quite the opposite. Walter Hill is the guy who made, uh, among among a bunch of other movies, he made The Driver, he made The Warriors, he made Southern Comfort, 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, Brewster's Millions. Uh, he is a producer on all of the Alien movies. Uh, the, dude, the dude's the real deal. Like the dude's one of the the greats in that sort of uh, pocket of filmdom but you know shit happens <laughs> um i mean also uh this the the final cut that we got is also not a hundred percent what his original vision was his was that. right it was the better part of 40 minutes longer wasn't it uh yeah it was he it was over two hours um and like even and I think also part of this movie bombing is that like a lot of the stuff that was in the commercial or not the commercials but the trailers were stuff that was cut from the movie. Right. Yes. And and as you just alluded to, when this movie came out, uh, folks didn't really like it that much at the time either. Uh, it yeah it was very financially unsuccessful and reviews were sort of all over the place. And a lot of like uh, if you go to Wikipedia, you can see a little blurb from Roger Ebert's review of the movie. And mostly like his the little blurb ends with him commenting on just what a sort of sad, lonely movie it is. Yeah. Uh, yes. And I, I definitely feel that. I think that like, but I think that that comes from the noir influences because noir in in its essence was pretty like joyless because it was about like a, a lone dark guy who's usually an alcoholic like solving a uh solving crimes and many betrayals and most of the time i, I give it like 50 50 he ends up dead depending on like 
the person dead or you know if he if he won it's big finger quotes around win right and in a lot of ways sort of like the ending of not to jump too far ahead but but the ending of this movie which it's tough to really spoil this if you've been keeping up with with our month with no name pew, pew, branding but uh, we're not past the spoiler wall so keep it to yourself all right I, I will say uh even though the the events of this movie largely of course mirror uh, both yojimbo and fistful of dollars they do so in a way that yeah really really does just rob it of any joy or feeling of victory or like any any desire on the part of the audience to applaud or hoot or holler anything it's it's it really there's a suffocating quality to the movie all the way through watching this honestly watching this movie feels like what i imagine it's like to breathe the air in the town of jericho i mean yeah it's real dusty it's a dusty town and there's a dead horse there and doesn't look like anyone's cleaning it up. I it will, probably smells like rot there. I will say. So so I really enjoy uh, how aggressively, aggressively, belligerently on the nose that piece of imagery is at the very beginning of the movie. Because in uh, in uh, Yojimbo, when Senjuro first arrives in the, the unnamed village, he sees a, a dog. Like the sight that he's struck by is he sees a dog running out of town holding a severed human hand in its mouth. Yeah. When the man with no name arrives in the town of San Miguel, he's startled by the sight of a, sort of a dead Mexican propped up on a mule being ridden out of town. That's very jarring. When Bruce Willis's John Smith enters the town of Jericho, he's met with with the sight of this decaying horse. The horse, uh, if you notice, is a white horse. Now, if you're if you're up on your uh, symbolism, the white horse means death. And I love uh, I love just the aggressive, belligerent uh, obviousness of that piece of imagery it's like oh even death is dead here and shit is real (laughs) fucking bad and stuff like you know i just at that point i was like okay we're making choices oh i mean yeah (laughs) they really wanted you to know what you were getting into like even as he's driving in they're like welcome to jericho sign it's like population it's all scratched out and it's like 59 (laughs) a yucca yucca and the the uh then you get the the smiley the the undertaker who just is just so happy to be dressing up a body in the window the um the undertaker by the way uh, i want to shout out this is the same actor who if you remember um uh sam raimi's spider-man movies uh this is the same actor who played uh bernard the butler okay who the guy who in Spider-Man Three gets the gets that nice little monologue about how he he loved Norman Osborn as he loves Harry. Right. Uh, it's not. I feel like this is probably. I'm sure dude's got credits going back even further than this, but I feel like this is the youngest I've seen him. Mm, okay. Nice. Yeah. Um. So I feel like this would be a good time to drop down that spoiler wall. We may as well. Um. And when we come back from the break, we're gonna play a little game of what's the difference. <laughs> So, uh, make sure that you join us. If, if you haven't seen the movie, um, you can do so. It's available for free on Vudu with, uh, with ads. You can also rent it on Amazon. Uh, I don't know why I pronounced it that way, but it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, and you can also, I believe, find it on the Google Play Store. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's widely available if you want to check it out. If you want to check it out. Um, and if you've already seen it, feel free to join us on the other side of the spoiler wall. Uh, while we're here, if you have a chance, go on to the Apple podcast store and leave us a rating or a review. Uh, five star ratings. We will read here on this show. Give you a little shout out. Uh, doing so really helps us get to the top of the charts, helps us keep building our audience. As you know, the, the greatest form of advertisement is word of mouth. So, uh, if you could do that, we'd appreciate it. Uh, and we will see you right after this break. Can Harry Potter cast a spell on Black Widow's heart? Would the doctor and Niles Crane write a prescription for love? Do Cthulhu and Godzilla have compatible genitals? These are the questions you should be ashamed for asking. But if you want answers, listen to Ships in the Night. It's a fanfic podcast where we put two fictional characters into a relationship. And figure out what would happen if they bumped uglies. Ships in the Night. Listen every Tuesday. But listen quietly. It's super not safe for work. And we are back. And it's time for our favorite game. 
What's the difference? I like that every time we we play this game, not even every time we play, every time you refer to this game, you yeah. just dig a little bit deeper into this voice you're doing. Yeah, that's uh, that's how it goes. <laughs> Especially because we are now this this game of what's the difference? <laughs> Good lord, uh, is three movies in, so yeah. we have three movies to compare. So many layers. Yes. in terms of how we are. Diving into the differences. I will, by the way, if you want to play along at home, what I discovered uh, before we came uh, in to talk about Last Man Standing, there is, if you're familiar with uh, uh, the Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, there's a website, an almost Wikipedia style reference site that I became familiar with over a decade ago that's called H2G2. So it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. um, Where you can just, it functions very similarly to Wikipedia. Um, forgot it existed for about a decade. I, I did a Google search for, you know, uh, the, the differences between the movies. They have, uh, you can go find it. There's this handy chart, uh, that says, you know, it's, it's in three columns. It's, uh, it's, uh, Yojimbo, Fistful of Dollars, Last Man Standing, and it goes down the list. So it says, uh, you know, plot element. Our hero is uh, Yojimbo, a scruffy ronin in 1860s Japan. Fistful of Dollars, a scruffy gunslinger known as the man with no name in late 19th century Mexico. Last Man Standing, a scruffy hitman on the run in Prohibition Era Texas. And right on down through all of the different elements of the movie, we're obviously not going to read to you from this entire list, but if you want to go and, and sort of catch yourself up on all of the differences, compare and contrast, uh, you can go uh, to h2g2.com and uh, you can find the comparison of Yojimbo, uh, Fistful of Dollars, and Last Man Standing. Nice. Uh, but they don't even need to because we're going to do it right here, baby. Oh, yeah. We're going to do it for you. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, first item on what's the difference is Last Man Standing has cars. Yes, that That's is true. the first one. Last Man Standing uh, does Last have Man cars. Last Man Standing has cars. Yes. Our, our modes of transportation are increasing as we continue to make our way through the time. Uh, Yojimbo, there, no one was riding anything. Everyone was just walking everywhere. That's true. And you, uh, could, you could argue that there is a natural progression in terms of transportation from pedestrian transportation to, uh, let's say, tamed or domesticated animal transportation. Yeah. And then now we have cars, and that's our main inciting incident, is this 1928 Ford A-Series, I think it was, um, gets beaten and battered as soon as Bruce gets into town, because these people are like, hey, hey, don't look at this girl. And we introduce the the main lady character. Uh, there's, there's one in each of them who is set free at some point. But we introduce her a lot earlier in this one. I feel like in Yojimbo, um, she may have been kind of in the background, but she was more of like an, an afterthought that we learn about later yes. once the uh, the hostage exchange takes place. Yes. Um, and in Horse With No Name, I feel like we... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's the song. The song. Fistful of Dollars. The thing is, it's the it's one of the, if you're gonna if you're going to flub the name, that's one of the most logical things you could have jumped to. <laughs> um, but yes. So uh, in Fistful of Dollars, the um, the hostage lady is. I, I think we first see her in the first act, but she doesn't become a big plot piece until later. Right. And then, uh, but in this one, she's the main component of the inciting incident. Yes. These uh, big gang dudes are like, you looking at, at Mr. Doyle's girl? They don't have these, this accent. It's, uh, I think they have uh, just regular white dude accents. So they're like, hey, you looking at Mr. Doyle's girl? And then they like beat up his car. Yes. Ensuring that he can't leave, even though they keep telling him to leave town yes um well that's they, they obviously the intention there is uh they just want to kill this dude but imagine being in uh willis's character goes by the obvious alias john smith uh, imagine being in john smith's position without having any of his abilities or his skills and realizing oh they're just boxing me in further and further until i die <laughs> <laughs> yeah um <laughs> which is it's bonkers but, like, then I feel like we get, I mean, then we get to meet the uh, the bartender, Joe, 
which we have the surrogates in, in each version. Yes. Um. So so Joe Monday, the bartender in this version, played by the great William Sanderson, who I think is probably best known, at least to me, best known um, uh, from Blade Runner, where he's the he's the toy maker. But also uh, more apropos as uh, the character E.B. Farnham on Deadwood, uh, which Walter Hill uh, directed some of. Oh, uh, well, uh, Deadwood, of course, uh, the HBO drama. They, they just finally got a movie last year to wrap everything up. Uh, one of the three greatest television programs of all time. It's not debatable. I will not be taking any questions. Oh, I have questions, though. Too bad. Okay. Well, fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, and this one, I feel like uh, the the bartender character takes a much, like, I guess he, he takes a, a bigger role in The Last Man Standing than, than in the other movies. Like, for the most part, he's just, he's, like, helping out our hero of no name. Um, but it, it feels more happenstance just because he's, he's a nice dude. Um, whereas this one, it feels like he's the outcast of the, the, the city. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Smith is the only one to really, like, treat him like a real person. Right. And so they become friends. Yeah. Um, and I mean that's a good way of ingratiating those two characters together, um, and and show I guess showing a little bit of uh, softness for the Bruce Willis character, which we don't really get that much. Sort of. I mean, like it's 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 also tough to talk about Willis's performance in this movie, in as much as uh, much like uh, some of the, the, the odd juxtapositions of, uh, genre stuff, much like how the, the style, the stylization of the violence seems at odds with the tone. Willis's performance often feels a bit at odds with itself. Like he feels alternately sort of like cocky, like kind of Bruce Willisy, like the way you normally think of oh, not quite McLean, like a way more serious McLean, but, but more in that direction. Yeah. And then, I mean, the way a lot of critics of the movie described it was just sort of monotonous and bland. And it feels like you're constantly, again, it feels like his performance is constantly being pulled in one direction or another. And I'm not sure why that is. Like, I'm not sure what what the biggest root cause of that was. Like, if he and, and Walter Hill couldn't necessarily get on the same page, like Walter Hill suggested this needs to be played one way. And Willis was like, yeah, but I want to try it this way. And they tried to have the best of both worlds and it doesn't quite come off. I don't know, but it it makes it 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 makes it for me real difficult to actually discuss Bruce Willis's performance in this movie because I feel like when he's not firing guns, it's a little it's a little all over the place without being big and outsized and over the top enough to make that aspect of it super fun. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's a quote from Walter Hill and I'm, I could look it up, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Um, but the gist of it was that he he felt like it was easy to work with Bruce Willis. Like, he didn't have to say much. Like, he would just be like, you have an idea of what this is? And Bruce Willis would go, Bogart. You, you're looking Bogart for Bogart. Or like a Robert Mitchum type thing. Right. I think, and, I think I saw this quote. Yeah. And he was like, yeah. But then, like, the, the second part of the quote is him being like, yeah. I mean, but, like, I, I always got the feeling that... Bruce Willis was irritated because he felt like he was always kind of being put in the same roles. Um, and like he's, it's because he's good at those type of roles. And so those are the roles that he gets. Um, but like, he like went one further too. He was like, he's really good at the things he's good at. And I don't know that he always chooses correctly. Right. Um, which, you see, you, you got to wonder because he says uh, when he's when he's asked about Willis's performance in Last Man Standing specifically, he says, no, I think he did a good job. But then in the, almost the same breath is like, but sometimes Mr. Willis chooses poorly. I mean, but both can be true, though. Yes. Oh, they definitely can. I just think it's you, you got to wonder the the context in which he's answering that question. Like, is that something that is actually germane to the specific question he was asked? Yeah. Or is that something he felt uh, uh, a, a, a need, a burden to sort of share with somebody else? Right. Um, which gets me into the next. What's the difference? <laughs> Um, which is the character of the man with no name. Yes. And so we, it, it's interesting to see these different sensibilities that were brought to the character. So Yojimbo himself 
yes, was a, a wandering Ronin, which meant that at some point he was very likely part of the shogunate military or was a, a dog of the military at some point. Um, and it's implied that Bruce Willis's character um, carries a, like his guns are government issued something or other 45s, which also kind of has the implication that he also was a person of the law and now is kind of wandering or etc. Right. So that seems like a direct takeaway from, uh, Yojimbo, right, um, and which which Eastwood's character in Fistful of Dollars doesn't really have. Like, you know, there's a tr- because he's so skilled, there's every possibility that he was part of some sort of um, army or law enforcement or something. But you never get any hint as to what his background actually is. Right. Um, yes, he is the most enigmatic of the three, um, and I think that it's interesting the way that the I guess the I, don't, I hesitate to call it the morality of the characters. But the uh, motivation of each character is different and it's Im- it's influenced by their setting and their background uh, in terms of like where they were created. Yeah. So so Yojimbo, his motivation is because like and we've talked about like no one knows what his true motivation was, but like it seems like his his putting the two gangs against one another is effectively to, um, you know, free this town, something, et cetera, for the greater good. Right. The greater good is being this sort of opportune uh, element of that. Right. Yeah. Whereas like in the Western setting, especially the European Western setting um, or the European created uh, Western setting, uh, this character uh, of the man with no name is his motivations are more ambiguous, but you get the sense that it could either be that he uh, is doing it for what could be the greater good, but it could also be a vindictive act. Right. I I do think there's an argument there uh, as well for the idea that he he more maybe than any, uh, either of the other two is looking to profit uh, personally. Uh, It is also totally possible that he makes off with some gold at the end of it. Like nobody, you don't get that moment where like he puts the saddlebags on the mule and somebody happens to open one and you see a ton of gold inside and stuff. But like realistically, if that dude could sneak off with a little gold, he probably did. But ultimately, yeah, in in that case as well, uh, because, uh, you know, Yojimbo is very much a comedy and Fistful of Dollars, though it has many moments of levity, is uh, far less so. Yeah, a lot of what the man with no name seems to be doing in large part seems to be in the name of sort of wiping these gangs off the face of the earth almost for the sake of doing so. Right. But because the the tone of Fistful of Dollars is so grand and so operatic and there's something like if it's if it's your jam at all, there is something fun about it. It makes that idea a lot more palatable than I found it to be in Last Man Standing, where ultimately you get to the end of the story. Uh, He was looking to profit personally, but realizes all of the money I made, I actually did the right thing and I gave it to these women that I'm helping escape. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I guess my only consolation is that it's better that all of these people are dead. But because the whole movie is so somber and so heavy, you get to the end of the movie and it's just like, fuck, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well. I mean, I think that I, I think this is where I differ from you in that I think that Bruce Willis's motivation was the most money oriented because he he specifically states he's just like, yeah, I'm just here for money. And, and, and so the way that they enact his story, which I think has a very Western, especially a very American uh, sensibility about it, is that his arc is do is getting to do a good thing. Um, it's, it's indifference. It's almost like America and, and, uh, World War II, um, <laughs> uh, where he essentially is just doing what he's going to do just for the sake of money, whoever's going to give him the most. And, and he's, he's playing, he doesn't really start playing them against each other until he feels like there are personal stakes and there are people he wants to try to protect. And that's his arc to be like, at first I'm out for myself. And now I have things I care about. Yes, and and I I agree with that. I I think it's interesting that where we arc this character to eventually, though, is, okay, I did the good thing and I did give this money away. Fuck, I 
what fuck why'd i do the, uh well at least at least all these men are dead <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> it's just like okay well uh it's it, it, i could sit here like we're doing now and i could actually chuckle about it like oh fuck all right that's an ending to this story yeah but the whole thing is so damn suffocating and not fun outside of moments not fun and so i get i get that same feeling that i think ebert was describing that like oh my god just what a sad lonely ending to this story i feel bad about this well i think the intention is to show that his his fight is never over there's because you you get this idea uh from this movie that he's constantly on the run and they keep trying to hint at it and talk about it um and so even though he's won this battle yeah um the next place he ends up in it effectively uh could end up the same way that he his it, whereas you get the idea that when uh your gym even though uh, let's assume that there were no sequels um and you could assume that this is just a one-time thing for Yojimbo. Like he came in, did this thing on a lark. Um, he he happened to do a good, and then he left. Right. Um, same with the man with no name. He like wandered in. He happened to do a good for personal reasons or not, and then he like could just go, move on and and like just live a, a peaceful life. Right. Well, so uh, the man with no name trilogy is an interesting case, right? Because Kurosawa did a direct sequel to Yojimbo that brought back that character. It's called Sanjuro. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Last Man Standing had no sequel. Uh, Fistful of Dollars has two sequels. But for all intents and purposes, Eastwood is meant to be playing three different characters. They just all happen to dress and behave exactly the same as each other. Right. So for all intents and purposes, yes, of course, for a few dollars more is a sequel, but it's not a it's not a direct story sequel. You know what I mean? So like for all we know, the man with no name who the 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 one guy calls Joe in Fistful of Dollars, maybe that guy did just kind of go off and live peacefully forever. Like we kind of don't know. And maybe like, you know, the the version of the man with no name that they refer to as Manko in for a few dollars more is like is doppelganger from Earth 2. Like we have no idea. Well, I mean, it could I think that it's more likely that in the way that we have combined different people's stories over the course of history, it's kind of that thing where um, maybe a few people did very important acts and then we consolidated them into one mythic figure. Okay. Um, so I feel like it would be more likely that would be the case with the man with no name, especially them having no name. It's, it, it makes them even more of a thing that you hold on a pedestal. Right. Um, and of course, the man with no name really just came out of the American marketing for those movies. Like right. they call him something in each one. Although, yes, he doesn't have like a, an official moniker. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, Joe in Fistful of Dollars. They call him Manco in For a Few Dollars More. And then uh, Tuco, the Eli Wallach character in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, calls him Blondie. Oh, nice. Yeah. But he's a, he's more of a brunette. He's more of like know? a he's like a real d uh, dirty blonde. Yeah. Dirtiest blonde. You could say he has dirty Harry. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. I guess you could, and I hate it. <laughs> You're right. He technically could. I don't know why you'd phrase it quite that way, but you could, and I hate it. <laughs> um. So, uh, another what's the difference? <laughs> I'm glad that you've committed to yelling it every time. <laughs> um. Another one is essentially how... The, uh, the like the the family layout of the different gangs basically. Yeah. Um, in the Last Man Standing, it is two separate, basically European origined families: one of Irish descent, one of Italian descent, and they are they both have the same job. Whereas, like in the other movies, they each took control of different places like pieces of industry and then had those compete yeah um in yojimbo uh yojimbo is unique amongst the three in that uh the sort of chain of command of the quote-unquote villains actually leads you up 
the ladder to essentially traditional capitalists. You've got uh, the textile merchant, you've got the the sake merchant. Right. Uh, whereas in the other two movies, uh, Fistful of Dollars and Last Man Standing, you could argue that they are in their own ways enterprising capitalists, but they're they're obviously working without uh, outside of the boundaries of the law. Yeah. Uh, with the Baxters and the Rojos, the Baxters are running guns, the Rojos are, are running liquor. And in the case of the, the two sort of competing factions in Last Man Standing, because it is set in Prohibition era Texas, they are both bootleggers. So they're, they both have these competing uh, liquor operations. Right. Um, and so uh, in Last Man Standing, we get the, uh, I would say, yeah, as you were saying, it's it's very much like Yojimbo, but we get the Yojimbo format where he goes to the Sebe equivalent uh, and is like, yo, put me up. Uh, and instead of, uh, Sebe had just a, I don't remember if it was his wife um, who was running the brothel. Who was but, basically saying like, we should kill him. Right. But instead of that, we get a cousin who is, um, <laughs> who's the most obnoxious person. His name is Giorgio. Giorgio Carmonte, played by Michael Imperioli, who uh, this came out in 96. Three years later was when The Sopranos premiered. And of course, his, he's got a very big career outside of Sopranos. But I think now, of course, a lot of people probably know him first and foremost as Christopher Moltisante from The Sopranos. Mm. Also want to shout out uh, as uh, Fredo Strozzi, the head of that family, is an actor named Ned Eisenberg. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and so they happen to combine the uh, the character of the brothel owner, that wife, and uh, the the person who the cousin who gets kidnapped later in in Yojimbo. That character, like we we see him a couple times, but like he's not super important. And then at a, at a certain point, he gets exchanged, and you're like, all right. Cool. Right. Um, so they they make a way to combine those two characters into one, which I think was a smart uh, play for them. It, well, yeah, especially if you're not. It, it, this is the shortest of the three as well, especially when in your final version, you don't quite have as much real estate. Yeah, you got to make some trim somewhere. Right. Um, and so in uh, and in place of the Ushitora family, um, we get uh, the the Doyles. Doyle. Um, being just he's just a dude he's a but but a dude played by uh, an actor i'm a very big fan of david patrick kelly who uh, i i know first and foremost from twin peaks where he plays jerry horn uh but also works a ton he was in the warriors uh, for walter hill um he what was it? Uh, if you've seen uh, john wick if you've seen the first john wick he's the cleaner who shows up and like you throw him a coin and he gets rid of bodies for you david patrick kelly huge career but an actor i'm i'm a fan of okay um, well, he, he gives, he gives a fun performance. Like he, he does a, a lot of good yelling. He, um, a lot of good yelling. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a bummer that the first person to die in the whole movie is the Inokichi stand-in, mm-hmm. um, who was like his best gun, this guy named Finn. Um, and so then we, we get the, the whispers of, uh, Hickey who, in this version of what's the difference <laughs> Jesus. is uh, their version of Unosuke or Ramon. And uh, Hickey, of course, played by the, the all powerful Christopher Walken. Right. Uh, doing uh, doing quite a voice. He's like he, he sounds exactly like Christopher Walken. Same Christopher Walken intonation. We all know. But he's also doing this a yeah, little bit. <laughs> super rat because the, the story goes that he got stabbed in the neck with an ice pick and not for nothing given that he sounds great right dude healed phenomenally um the first time we meet him and the first time that he interacts with bruce willis they're like doing a fun little banter where uh, bruce willis is like i heard uh, you burned down an orphanage i thought that was cool and he's like hey don't don't listen to everything you <laughs> he fucking goes for seven years, your father wore this watch up his ass. I don't even. What no? is that from? It's Pulp Fiction. They're both in Pulp Fiction, and Christopher Walken has that one monologue where uh, it's a flashback where Bruce Willis's character is a little boy, and he Walken shows up and gives him uh, his father's old war watch and tells him the story about how to keep possession of the watch when he was a POW. He had to hide it in his ass. Oh, yeah, cool. Have you seen that movie? Uh, I saw it like. Five years ago. 
Okay. Um, so sort of. Yeah, it's not like yeah, it it's not burned in my brain like it is for most people who are a fan of like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, fair enough. But yeah, so he said that. Yes. Um, no. But I I was it. I'm a I'm a guy who when I watch things and two people are bantering, I go kiss. I've noticed this about you. Yes, and that uh, was one of those moments where they're bantering and he's like, "Don't don't don't believe everything you hear." And I was like, "Kiss." Like you, you do know it. too, you know too that if they had actually smooched, um, it wouldn't necessarily make this movie objectively better. But you know, this thing would be held in far higher esteem today if they had locked <laughs> lips at one point. Yeah. That would have been great. Like, as he was dying or something. Um, but that gets me... I just can't imagine Willis saying yes to that. I could almost imagine walking going, eh, it's funny. But yeah. I cannot imagine Bruce Willis saying, okay, yeah, sure. No. Bruce Willis feels like one of those dudes who also has a thing in his contract, which is like, I can only be punched a certain amount of times. Right. I'm a tough guy. Right. Also, I did this movie called The Kid, and it was bad. <laughs> Why are you taking shots at the kid in particular <laughs> it's a bad movie uh, but, but it, like he wasn't a tough guy in that movie that's true um, i don't i remember what it is but i have no memory of like what happens in it or the quality that's the one with spencer breslin right yeah where like he plays a, a kid version of, of bruce willis right and he ends up somehow in the future and uh bruce willis is taking care of him and he's like i used to be such a good kid and the kid's like well why am i such a stuffy old poop man why am i made of poop um but yeah anyway um so yes it would have it really would have made the movie a lot better i think it would have also increased the stakes between those two characters um but instead we get a lot of that's right it's the it would be the enemies turned lovers trope that everybody is arguing about on twitter now I don't, don't, I don't know. But um, some some I, people, no, I don't want to get into yeah, it. They just, oof. Uh, but um, I, I just feel like uh, the way that Hickey is, uh, and this is this goes to one of my. What's the difference? <laughs> uh, big, I'm big doing a big down. thumbs down. Um, is the whole point of the Hickey character? is supposed to be uh, almost like a dark reflection of what our hero could be mm. um, in that he is a guy who is great at what he does, but he's extra sadistic. And you think that like our, our main character uh, of no name is always someone who is out for himself and then like decides to do a good. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you get this idea that um, he could easily if he were to choose a side, become as dark as this other character. And you you get that with the escalation of the weapon. And so with uh, Yojimbo, it is um, Unosuke who has the gun. And it's like uh, him showing his sadism through uh, something that he deems is more powerful than a sword. Right. Something he could ex- uh, like execute his bloodthirst with. Yes. Um, and in the same you get with... Uh, the horse with no nope with the man, <laughs> fistful of dollars, um, where you have Ramon who uses this rifle in order to satiate his bloodthirst, um, and they imply a couple times that the weapon of choice for Hickey is going to be this Tommy gun, right. and you're probably going to get this like Tommy gun versus double pistol fight off, which seems um, like the, the natural hardware based escalation, right? Right. Um. But we don't get that. We don't. And so if we're going to talk about the ending and what I found sort of the most disappointing about the ending of this movie compared to the other two. Yeah. Is not that we don't end up um, with the smaller weapons versus the big weapon. That, okay, you know, that would have been maybe fun to watch like that kind of shoot 'em up sequence. But the bigger and weirder missed opportunity to me feels like we we set something up that we we just sort of aggressively chose not to pay off. So, um, yes, in in both uh, uh, Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars, there's the uh, theoretically, quote-unquote, less powerful weapon versus the more powerful weapon. But really, Senjuro bests his opponent because his opponent underestimates, uh, say, his uh, uh, tactical prowess, right? Um, uh, Ramon 
underestimates the man with no name's ingenuity, right? Because he he builds that piece of armor for himself. Yeah. We set up this idea of Hickey sort of baiting people by saying, oh, you wouldn't shoot an unarmed man in the back, would you? And we get an echo of that in their final confrontation. Yeah. It feels to me, and considering how heavy and suffocating the whole movie is, this choice is directly in line with what it seems like they're doing in the rest of the movie. It feels like we set up Hickey to underestimate Smith's sadism. Yeah. That Smith would be is exactly the kind of man who would shoot an unarmed man in the back if he felt that that was what needed to be done. Right. And for whatever reason, we don't go that way. And that felt a little bit like a studio note to me. Mm. There is an alternate ending, and I, I don't know what's in this ending, but there's a, an ending where uh, he dispatches hickey in a different way yeah. and i don't know what way that is maybe it gets at what i'm saying a little bit but it feels very much like you know we get to the end and i'm like oh well all right i don't know if i love the movie but this is an interesting if really pitch black idea yeah. um that like his the the characters were underestimated by their foes in the previous two movies in one way or another and i, I think it's actually a compelling idea dark though it may be that hickey truly underestimates he's like no one's more sadistic than i am and shit he's wrong this motherfucker is right but we don't even we don't even do that it's just he ends up willis ends up winning because he's just quicker on the draw right which is fine i guess like that's a the, one of the oldest western staples there is but it feels like a real big and and weird missed opportunity. Yes, I would agree. Um I mean because I think it it yes, it gets to the the thematic idea and the payoff of themes um that like this guy who is finally willing to do a good is is going to take the the savage way that he accomplished everything he would do for himself for others now. Right. And so I think that would be the ultimate payoff for that. Um, but I do understand that the the idea of a, a studio being like, you can't have your hero uh, shoot a man in the back. Like, it's it's unsavory. Right. Um, and I hope that, and this is, this is until I actually lay my eyes on that alternate ending, it's that uh, he, go, he runs up, grabs Christopher Walken from behind. He, like, he... Gives him a little peck on the cheek and shoots him in the back. Oh, no, even better, man. Uh, uh, what I want now, as soon as you said that, I want him to to lean in, like kiss him like real softly and sweetly and be like, oh, Hickey, one other thing. I probably should have mentioned this earlier. I'm poison. <laughs> and then he just fucking... <laughs> Fucking Batman and Robin, bro. Yeah, no, and he turns I got all it. green and veiny yeah. and falls down and shit. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, that was Lionel Luther, though. That's true. That was what's his name, John Glover. Yeah, uh, Lionel Luther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but, but, uh, but he doesn't have a name. That's just who he is now. <laughs> okay. He'll always be Lionel Luther to me, no matter what he's playing. Like he could be, he could be in something right now, like a, a top build role. Uh, and he'll always just, it'll be like, oh, Lionel Luther's playing another guy. Oh, see, I just think of him as he's, well, A, I believe he's the voice of the Riddler on the Batman animated series. But I also think of him as, I mean, from Batman and Robin, he plays Jason Woodrue, who in the Swamp Thing comics becomes the Floronic Man. So I mostly just think of John Glover as a big Swamp Thing Easter egg. Okay, nice. Yeah. Um. So I think my last- John Glover? John Glover. I, I there we go. No man. Nailed it, Switch. He has no name. So another thing on my or I guess the last thing on my What's the <laughs> Jeepers list yeah. is um so in the American version of uh Fistful of Dollars. There is a, a cut scene that we had talked about or a scene that was oh, added. For the TV version, yes. Yes. Um, where uh, a mayor played by um, uh, Harry, Harry Dean Stanton, Dean Stanton uh, comes in and is like, why don't you clean this town up? And so we get something like the equivalent in Last Man Standing. Um, instead of a fun government subplot, we get uh, this these rangers who come in. And uh, the Rangers, played by the dude who plays Doctor Kelso in Ken Jenkins, uh, yes, yeah, from Scrubs, in Scrubs, and he's like, "Hey, here's the deal, uh, man with no name, Mister Smith, sir. 
what we're going to do here is we don't like two different gangs having one town. Two gangs too much. Right. One gang, fine. Two gangs, no. Right. Yeah. So he basically is like, get rid of one gang or we're going to come in and get rid of both gangs. And it feels like the 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 main thing that he should have done is just been like kill them both but if, just, but at that point he's still out for the money right so like if they if they both just get wiped out by law enforcement he doesn't make any money but he has like a week to do it he has a whole week to just like get my, get that money <laughs> and then come in and just like I don't know, sweep in. He'd be like, yo, law enforcement, I think I saw some dudes over there and just like start putting stuff in his jacket. Yeah, it's like as, as he's pocketing all of their shit, like not just not just cash, but like cutlery and shit like that. He's just yeah. like, man, look, I don't know. I tried my best. Couldn't get rid of either one of them. I don't know what to tell you. Bye. Right. Um, it feels like such a weird thing because it's introduced, I want to say like two thirds of the way into the movie. Yeah. Like um, which also takes away from the arc of this character, which is that he's supposed to decide to do a good on his own. Right. Whereas, uh, and maybe it should have happened earlier, or it should have been overt that he, he had a connection to the Rangers. It should have been like, yo, you as a former Ranger should know that we don't do two gangs. Right. Um, and maybe that's on the cutting room floor where he has a take where he's like, we used to be best friends, you and I, and I'm going to give you a chance to do this and, and we'll let you back on the Rangers or some shit, like something that like add Cause you could take this whole scene out. Um, you basically could. And yeah. it wouldn't matter. Cause he never, Ken Jenkins never comes back. No. It, and maybe it was another scene that was added specifically for, like an Amer like well, it's an American movie, but like for like home video or something, or another one of those studio notes where the studio is like, I don't understand why he's doing this, and you're like, look, studio people, it's it's part it's subtext, and they're like, sub who text? I don't can you get spell it? that? Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it is interesting too. It feels it feels to me almost more like some elements got pulled out because it feels like you know listening to you sort of describe your your feelings about that scene, it just feels like we're not connecting those dots well. Right. Like in a world where okay, we imply that that John Smith maybe has a background that ties to law enforcement, there there are missing pieces here that help contextualize, like you're saying, fully his relationship with say um, the the Ken Jenkins character. Also, uh, to to a slightly lesser degree, but I, I feel like something that's a kind of a victim of the same issue is I feel like we don't really connect the dots on the through line with Bruce Dern's sheriff character. Um, it's really nice to see Bruce Dern and stuff, obviously, like big Bruce Dern fan. And if you don't know Bruce Dern's name, you know, you know, Bruce, he's Laura Dern's dad, but he's also, oh. uh, uh, yeah, Laura Dern's parents are, uh, Bruce Dern and Diane Ladd. Um, but he had, uh, when he did Nebraska a few years ago, um, with, uh, with Alexander Payne, I believe there was a big, like sort of late stage career resurgence for him, but he's, he works all the fucking time. He was just in, uh, just played George Spawn in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So he's always working. And I'm a, a big uh, uh, Dern fan. I um, mean, I think he does good work here, but I feel like I never really felt like we connected the dots in any way with this character either. And I wonder if, if we had, um, we, if we had just a hair more information about John Smith's secret origin, yeah. I don't think we have to write any more material for the Bruce Stern Sheriff, because if we know a little bit more about John Smith, that can color that character in a completely different light. Like, you know what it means, say, if, if John Smith is a former agent of the law, what it means for him to be sitting there having a conversation with somebody who's wearing a badge, but is too cowardly, too corrupt to bother doing anything. Right. Versus the guy who wears no badge, carries no authority, but is like the consummate man of violent action and stuff. And I feel like we just... We just whiffed on connecting those dots in a way that would make that feel more meaningful. Yeah, it almost feels like we get a not a reverse arc for the sheriff, but like he gets his own like tiny arc in that he's like, you when you meet him, he's like, hey, I know that you just went through some trauma, but uh, I ain't gonna do shit about he it. He literally you says, leave. you know what I'm gonna do about it? Nothing. Right. Um, and at the end, he. He gets to this point where he's like, because he also is just a guy out for his own like money. He just wants that sweet, sweet paycheck. He'll right. take it from whoever in the same way that Bruce Willis's character. So they're like 
on the same journey. And that's how the, he ends up helping him at the end. Right. Um, but like, there's no turning point for that. There's no real, uh, like there's no point at which they grow a bond. It's just more that, you know, Bruce Willis has been feeding him information and it's been getting him a lot of money, but that's not really, there's never a point where he's like, you know what? I respect you. Mm -hmm. You're, you've shown me that a man can make a difference. Right. Ah, (laughs) right. Um, and I think that that's just the one thing that we really needed. Yeah. And I assume it's on the cutting room floor. Um, I would be interested, as much as it would pain me, to watch the full version of the movie. Like the the release. The, the hill cut. <laughs> release the hill cut. <laughs> Hashtag release the hill cut. See, the thing is, though, and we'll never, we won't, we won't know unless we watch the version of the movie. But it's entirely possible that that expanded version is actually... And a very watchable movie, because at the very least, you'd think stuff has more space to breathe, so it doesn't feel like you're being strangled the whole time. Right. You'd think. Yeah. It's, um, it's possible it's the same, but longer. <laughs> so now now that we're, we're done with what's the difference, I really want to talk about this Lucy character, um, who has no, uh, I guess, no surrogate in any of the other movies. Like, she's her own thing that they were like, yo... Since we're doing noir, we're going to bring this damsel in. Ooh, boy, you guys like damsels? Because we got fucking damsels, bitch. (laughs) Um, And so we get her and she's part of his uh, part of uh, Smith's plan uh, in that she feeds him information and he feeds her dick. And so um, that's that's their arrangement. You're not wrong, but fuck, man. (laughs) Um, it's a little, it's a little uncouth. Is it? It's even un- that's uncouth for Jericho, even. Okay, I'm sorry. She feeds him information, and he feeds her the kind of respect and and uh, love for her body that she has been wanting. That's the ticket. There we go. <laughs> um, and but like the way that it happens is that, or the way that it ends is that she gets brutally beaten up her ear removed mm-hmm. um and he he helps pay for her to get out of town and my head canon what i hope for this character is that she ends up in a good place and uh you know is happy but i don't think i don't know with the way that this movie is i imagine she got on that bus got tetanus and died in a corner my hope her is ear that it's infected and her brain explodes jeez <laughs> oh, my hope is that there's sort of an alt universe where that character gets a spinoff where she basically goes she finds like this uh sort of like rogue steampunk roboticist who builds her a cybernetic ear uh-huh. that enhances her senses yeah. and she becomes a bounty hunter oh. i think that would be rad yeah that'd be dope uh so make that movie Oh, okay. Yo, New Line, make that movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, why don't we? Well, why don't we get a treatment going, and then we'll 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 see if we can get some bites. Get Honestly, some just do it. If you're get like, there hasn't been another full on remake of Yojimbo since. But if the day comes, and the day will come when they decide to do it again, make it a lady. Yeah. There you go. That's my note. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, that's woke culture gone wrong. Oh, what are you, some kind of woke? Make it a lady, and she only shoots dudes in the dick. Apparently, oh, (laughs) um, yeah. I had read that in the in the alternate ending, uh, Doyle gets shot in the dick. Oh, uh, because of him, like you know, assaulting the uh, damsel or like the the main woman who uh gets set free and that was a bridge too far for the studio apparently like we're we're gonna draw the line at dick violence yeah all right i mean yeah dick violence not very not very well yeah not very big in the 90s it was real big in the 80s with robocop and then they were like oh boy too, too much dick violence gotta we gotta stray hey this is this is something that can only happen to men and they need to be protected right <laughs> men's rights (laughs) um anyways uh do you have any last thoughts about this movie 
Um, well, so, of course, I don't want to speak for you, but I get the impression that of the three movies that we have talked about in our series, uh, this is, uh, I think, both of our least favorite, I would say. I think it's fair to, to, to venture that. Yes. Um, okay. So, I will say this. Um, it is... Uh, Obviously, I don't think on its own terms, Last Man Standing works as well as Yojimbo or Fistful of Dollars. But uh, at the same time, it can't really be blamed for not innovating to the same extent uh, that the other two movies did, right? I mean, uh, so Yojimbo came along at a time where there really was no precedent for that type of story being told that way. Um, within the uh, uh, Jedi Geki genre, did I say that right? You can tell me. Sorry, say it again? No. So within that genre, uh, this was, Yojimbo was the first time really where you saw sort of like blood depicted on screen that way. The first time you heard like uh, realistic sounds of sword on bone and stuff like that. And it really sort of reshaped the way those samurai stories on film were told going forward. Uh, Fistful of Dollars, as we talked about last week, was not the first European Western, but it was the first distinctly Italian Western and really just exploded the dam and and led to an absolute uh, phenomenon, this massive flood of uh, movies, uh, Westerns being made in Europe. Yeah. Last Man Standing can't really make any similar claim. And I don't necessarily think that it's the fault of the movie. It's obviously circumstances in which it was made. There wasn't necessarily room to do that. That's fine. That's that's circumstance that's outside of the hands of any team of filmmakers, any studio, the right time, right place, inspires the right people, and so on. However, in a world where that is true and that is unavoidable, I wish that, and you, you really don't know, uh, we don't know, Walter Hill probably knows, uh, who really should shoulder the lion's share of the responsibility for the fact that on its own terms, Last Man Standing doesn't quite work. But I feel like, yeah, in in a world where you weren't going to innovate the way that the movie's predecessors did, the fact that there are this many weird missed opportunities in the thing is is quite a bummer to me. Yeah, I think the main difference is that uh, the first two uh, Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars were the expression of two people's, the full expression of two people's vision. Yes. Whereas um, Hill was approached with the idea and he was given limitations from the beginning. And you can definitely tell that this movie is riddled with studio notes. Absolutely. Um, and so it, 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 I think it was doomed to fail from the beginning. Um, and I think that, that it's not, uh, no one individual's fault. It's just, it, it was, uh, it was a, ca a caged bird that was handcuffed and you, you can't expect it to fly. Yes. I um, think that's fair. Yeah. And so I think that, and, and it also includes a lot of elements that I just don't enjoy, like personally. Right. Um, so I think that, yes, if, this movie or this like format was to be remade. I think there's a lot of potential for it. I think that like, so another movie that will not will um, Bruce Willis did, um, which is a close, um, I think it's close to this movie, but it's not this movie was lucky number Slevin. Oh, wow. Which is, I have not thought about lucky number Slevin in a couple of years. I've only seen, I saw it for the first time a few months ago. Okay. And it is effectively two rival gangs being played against one another by um, Bruce Willis's character and uh, Josh Hartnett's character. Interesting. Um, so some of the, some of the elements are a hundred percent there. Right. Um, it's just that um, it's it's shielded and it's different in that it's like a revenge thing as opposed to like just a wandering guy coming in and doing it doing it a bit right um but i think that like something like that has the the full expression of what this could have been where it's a more modern setting um and it's that idea just taken to its full realization right um so i think that we should have another one it, with the format i think it uh could use a good like i think there's still a lot of room for it to grow and breathe in its own atmosphere yes um i feel like i had read that the original concept was for it to be in a sci-fi setting um interesting but, but, i i definitely heard at the very least more far more modern 
than yeah. what we got. I think it could have helped the movie to have had a completely different setting as opposed to being Western adjacent. Yes, it's still, even though it is very much dealing in strictly noir tropes uh yeah it just feels so there's so much overlap like i feel like to call it a straight noir is a little disingenuous it's very much a noir western right very much so that you can't the whole movie is so heavily saturated with western iconography um that you can't yeah you can't really separate one from the other i would like to if they do a version of the story again and it really is just a matter of time. Uh, I would love to see uh, one, yeah, completely different setting, and two, not a white guy. In fact, like no, like because the thing is, like uh, obviously, Toshiro Mifune was not a white guy. Yes. Uh, obviously, most of the supporting cast um, in Fistful of Dollars are uh, Spanish or Italian, but Eastwood right. is a white guy. Yes. Almost everybody, no matter what uh, ethnicity they're playing in Last Man Standing, is a white guy. Yes. So less of that. Yes, that would be dope. Yes. Because uh, we've seen it, you know what I mean? And not because this isn't even me being like, you know, fucking like woke for wokeness sake. It's if we're going to tell the story again, let's not tell it exactly the same fucking way again. Right. Yeah. Uh, Lex is saying that uh, it's just like that dead white horse in Last Man Standing. It's been beat to death. <laughs> so let's get something new. I saw a dead white thing and went, what a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucked up. Um, but yeah, so so I guess um, since we're we're going to try and tie this whole thing up with a bow, not just our conversation about Last Man Standing, but also this is the conclusion of our uh, three-week uh, series, Month With No Name, pew, 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 branding. I like this callback. Yeah. We didn't really do one for the first. The first there we go. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Nailed it. Um, I think, um, look, I think both Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars are all timers. Now, Tari, you're not a Western guy, so obviously you're not going to get as much out of Fistful as I did. I do think, sidebar, you're not a Western person, so I don't think, for example, for a few dollars more is necessarily going to be for you either. I do think tonally you'd get a little more out of it and i think you'd i think you might enjoy that one a little bit more it gets it opens up a little bit breathes a little better the the tone is a little bit lighter and more fun you also don't like western so you may get nothing out of it regardless but right but uh i think uh even though last man standing in in my opinion and tari seems like yours as well is the weakest of the three i do think it is worth looking at and considering in the way that we have looked at it and considered it. I think it's really genuinely interesting, and it's why we wanted to talk about these three movies back to back to back in the first place, to see how different filmmakers working from different perspectives, working with potentially very different obstacles as far as trying to translate their vision to the screen, how they approach the same material. And I do think even though, yeah, the movie doesn't necessarily work on its own terms, it is really fascinating to me to look at Last Man Standing in relation to Fistful of Dollars and Yojimbo. I just I think it's a really interesting, uh, almost like a teaching tool, uh, if nothing else. See, like, okay, well, here's the same story told a hair differently. That other one worked better. Right. Let's sort of dig into why. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, so what do y'all at home think? Do you enjoy Last Man Standing? What's the difference that you enjoy? <laughs> um, but also, uh, let us know how you enjoyed the series, The Month With No Name. Shing! Hell yeah. Branding. Uh, <laughs> you know, let us know if you think that we should do more series like this. Uh, if so, let us know what you feel like we could do a series on uh, we're totally open to ideas we're totally open to uh, hearing from you guys and exploring new content uh, so you know give us a ring you can do so at Missing Outcast M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T uh, but if you want to just talk to Lex about westerns or something you can do so on his social media uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. awesome uh, and if you want to talk to me about cool stuff like uh, samurai things and Eastern sensibilities, you can do so at Tari J, T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. Uh, and we will be talking to you guys next week. Don't forget uh, to hashtag release the hill cut uh, just so they know that they made a mistake. New Line <laughs> Cinema made a mistake. 
Um, but until we speak to you next, this has been the retrospective that is introspective. And now you have a new perspective. Would you put a watch in the ass of a man with his back turned who's unarmed? It's the only way to do it. How do Why? you how do you wear yours? Yeah. <laughs>